0: Well, as I promised last Sunday, this being the last Sunday before Christmas, I wanted to take a break from our study of the book of Romans and um, give a Christmas message, but it's also um, a message that is closely connected to Romans and what we've been learning in the book of Romans because as we've been going through uh, chapter 6 and 7, and particularly chapter 7 in Romans, uh, The passage that I want to preach from this morning is a passage that uh, continually was coming to my mind, and um, if you know anything about the book of Romans and you know anything about the book of Galatians, uh, those two books have a lot in common, and um, Galatians, maybe you could liken to Romans' little brother or little sister um, in the sense that Paul was addressing a lot of the same themes, and particularly uh, salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from works. And we know that that's the theme of Romans, and it's also the theme of Galatians, and so what we're going to hear today is going to sound like the echoes of our series in Romans, but uh, hopefully from a fresh perspective, and one that's focused around the Christmas story, uh, the, the story of Christ's birth. And so take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4, and I want to look at verses 4 and 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of as sons Father thank you for this precious text that immediately takes us back in our minds to that manger in Bethlehem 2000 years ago and i pray that as we contemplate this text as we think about it lord that you would grant us grace to know what it means and how does it how it applies to our lives Lord, that we might know what you want us to know so we can be who you want us to be today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure most of you have heard of John Wesley. He was an honor graduate of Oxford University, an ordained clergyman in the Church of England. He was orthodox in his theology. He was active in practical good works regularly visiting the inmates of prisons and workhouses in London, helping distribute food and clothing to slum children and orphans. He studied the Bible diligently and attended numerous services on Sunday and various other services throughout the week. He generously gave offerings to the church and alms to the poor. He prayed and fasted and he lived an exemplary exemplary moral life. You may remember that when he was in college, he started what was called the Holy Club for guys that wanted to get together and pursue holiness together. Wesley even spent several years as a missionary to the American Indians in what was then the British colony of Georgia, but upon returning to England, he penned a very surprising entry in his journal. He said this, quote, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. How was that possible? Here was a man who tirelessly did everything he could to live a life that was pleasing to God and yet he knew that something was missing. And then one night when he went to a meeting he heard the gospel and he got truly saved. And this is how he described what happened that night in his journal. He said this, quote, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, as you might know, Wesley went on to become one of the greatest preachers of all time and founded what we know today as the Methodist Church. But I share his testimony this morning as sobering proof that it's possible for someone to actively serve Christ without knowing Christ. In other words, it's, it's possible to say all the right things and do all the right things, even believe all the right things and still not be truly saved, to be what we've called before a believing unbeliever. Someone who believes in Jesus, right, but you're not a true believer. I think those in this condition are illustrated by the older brother in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I'm sure you're familiar with that story. And while this, the, the little brother, the younger brother, was lost in a foreign country, the older brother was lost in his own backyard. And that older brother in Jesus' story was representative of the Pharisees who were seeking to earn God's favor through their obedience. That's what that older son was doing. And Jesus was making the point that those who self-righteously strive to earn God's favor by legalistically keeping a bunch of rules and regulations are just as lost as those who are living unrighteously in total rebellion against God. Both those sons were lost. Both were equally and desperately in need of God's grace But as it would be, the unrighteous usually realize it, whereas the self-righteous don't. And of course, we have the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee going to worship the Lord in the temple, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy, because I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this. Whereas the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, what? The sinner Ultimately, it takes God's gracious intervention to open our eyes to the futility of trying to achieve salvation through our own effort. And we've been learning this from the book of Romans. Not only Romans, but really the entire Bible makes it undeniably clear that no one is saved by being a good person or doing good things. But solely by God's grace... Through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are we saved through what? Faith is not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. I think one of the clearest statements in the whole Bible that salvation is by faith and not by works is right here in the book of Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. You think Paul was trying to make a point there? It's like, Paul, are you stuttering here? Why, Why do you keep saying the same thing over and over again? He didn't want... He didn't want these believers in the region of Galatia to be to misunderstand or to be confused about the doctrine of salvation, how a person is truly saved. You see, these believers had been deceived by a group of false teachers called the Judaizers, who taught that a person needed to be circumcised according to the Jewish law in order to be saved. It would be much like those today who say that you have to be baptized in order to be a Christian. It's what's referred to as baptismal regeneration, that in other words, you can't go to heaven unless you've been baptized. They equate baptism with their salvation. Well, anyone who requires that people do something in order to be right with God are guilty of distorting the gospel message and confusing people about how a person is truly saved. And if you remember back in Galatians chapter 1, Paul was very concerned about how the gospel was being perverted, was being distorted. In fact, he called it a different gospel. What you've been hearing from these Judaizers is a different gospel. It's not the same gospel that I preach to you. And the heart of Paul's letters, letters, excuse me, to these confused believers, was, was a defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he built this intricate case in chapters 3 and 4, to prove that trying to keep the law was not only unnecessary for salvation, but it was impossible. And he explained that the real purpose of the law was not to save us, but to show us that we needed to be what? That we needed to be saved. And we've been learning this from the book of Romans, that God established the law to expose our sinfulness, and create in us a hunger to be freed from our sin. And ultimately to lead us to a place where we recognize that we need Jesus. And we place our faith in him as the only way to be saved from sin. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. So that we may be justified by what? Works? No, justified by faith. And then we get to chapter 4. And Paul continues with this illustration or analogy of a child coming of age. Like this person that had a tutor leading them to the truth. And so here we have in verses 1 through 3... This, this illustration of a child coming of age and taking on the privileges and responsibilities of, of adulthood. Notice verse 1, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is an own, own owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. This was simply a reference to, uh, to the tradition of the day, that when uh, a child was, was young uh, even though they were an heir of the father's estate and they had all these rights and, 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 and privileges, um, until the day the father made them an heir, they were no better than a slave. In fact, they were under guardians and managers who were, who were teaching them and, and, and developing them to the point where they could actually receive the father's inheritance Verse 3, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. I think that phrase there, the elemental, elemental things of the world, uh, is referring to the ABCs, if you will, of religion. Long before a child can read it right, what is the first thing they learn? What do we all learn first in school? We learn the alphabet, right? Why? Because letters are the basic building blocks that will allow us to read and, and, and write freely. And so children learn the alphabet. They also learn to identify objects by pictures and symbols. There's, right when we were little, we had picture books that had no words. They were just symbols, and our parents would point to certain pictures and, and say, what is that, and what is that, and what is that? And, and we would learn these objects. And so in a similar way, what Paul was Referring to here is that the Jewish religion was full of letters and pictures and images. All the rites and rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices were all symbols of what was to come in Christ. They were designed to prepare God's people for their freedom that the Messiah would provide. But until Christ came, the Jews remained in bondage to these elementary principles of the law. And so in the next two verses, Paul explained how God graciously intervened in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, bringing freedom to those who were enslaved by the law, those who were trying to save themselves by being a good person or doing good things. Paul writes, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, those verses, my mind automatically is transported back to the stable in Bethlehem, the site of the birth of Christ. And on that glorious night 2,000 years ago, God's grace appeared in the form of a baby lying in a manger. Jesus Christ personified the grace of God. And in these two verses, Paul described the birth of Christ really in a capsule form. In simple terms, he explained when Christ was born, how Christ was born, and why Christ was born. And I want to look at these three aspects of Christ's birth this morning that really put on display God's grace and love and mercy towards us. Let's look first of all at the providence, the providence of Christ's birth. He came at the right time. Notice the beginning of verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came. In other words, God had providentially prepared the entire world for the coming of his son at this particular time in history. His sovereign timetable that he had planned out in eternity past, was ready to be set in motion here on earth. The world scene was set. Everything was in place. You say, like what? Well, for instance, the Roman government had established peace throughout the entire known world, which provided economic and political stability. It was referred to as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. The Romans had also built an elaborate road system that made it easy to travel safely and freely all around uh, the known world. Uh, The Greek language had been adopted as the official language of the Roman Empire, allowing for easy um, and effective communication with everyone. There was a common language. Synagogues by this time had been established throughout the entire Roman Empire, which provided a base for, for Christian preaching. And meant that the Old Testament scripture was known and available almost everywhere. Religiously, pagan gods were losing their credibility. Old religions were dying. Old philosophies were empty and powerless to change lives. Even pagans were crying out for something real. Even the unbelievers wanted something different. And then morally, the world had slipped to an all-time low. Slavery Sensuality, luxury, had produced this moral vacuum, and so there was this. Uh, whenever uh, I guess morality sinks to an all-time low, there's a uh, usually a, a, a spiritual uh, hunger which which comes at an all-time high, and so there was this spiritual hunger, and so I think all these were factors in the rapid spread of the gospel. The time was ripe for Christ to come, but I think what seems foremost in Paul's mind here is that the years of bondage to rules and regulations had crushed all hope of anyone finding favor with God through human effort. Mankind was locked up in their sin and condemned by every standard they made for themselves. And so the law had achieved its purpose. It had revealed man's utter sinfulness and inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness Man was unable to keep the law. It was fully demonstrated. Every man stood condemned before a holy and perfect God. And once mankind was convinced that they couldn't achieve God's righteousness on their own, God provided it for them through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the providence of Christ's birth. He came at the right time. By the way, there's nothing more important in the eternal plans of God than the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we see God's sweet providence in that, how much more should we see God's sweet providence in just our day-to-day lives? As you consider your life's plans and present and future And you're wondering, what is God up to? This is a great reminder that God's timing is what? Perfect. And he has you in a place where he wants you to wait. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. His timing is perfect. Well, let's look at the second aspect of Christ's birth. And that's the profundity of Christ's birth. The profundity of Christ's birth. He came in the right way. Notice what Paul said in verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth his son. God sent his son on a mission as his representative with a special task to accomplish. And I think that phrase there, God sent forth his son, is intended to highlight the deity of Christ, the fact that. Jesus is God. But then notice he quickly follows it up with another phrase, born of a woman, which I think is there to highlight the humanity of Christ, the fact that he was born like every other human. One commentator put it this way, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, was sent to earth by the Heavenly Father to miraculously join with a sinless human nature in the womb of a sinful Jewish virgin named Mary. We've been reading about the virgin birth the last couple of weeks from Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. But turn over quickly to Galatians, excuse me, we are in Galatians, and to Philippians. Just a couple uh, books to the right. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And this is a very important text. This is the text that theologians call the kenosis text, the emptying of himself. I want to talk about that in just a second. In other words, an appropriate way to understand that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, talking about Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, i.e., he was God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was equal to God. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think the simplest way to understand what Paul was saying here in the letter he wrote to the believers in Philippi is that Jesus was never any less God on earth than he was in heaven. This is not subtraction. It's not like he took away his glory and and his his, um, divine attributes. No, he covered them up, if you will, by addition. He took on flesh. He took on a human body. This is what we know as the incarnation of Christ. And this is where theologians try to help us. They come up with words that we've never heard before, like hypostatic union, which is a word to describe the fact that Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man. In other words, he's not, he's not 50% God, 50% man, not half God, half man. No, he's 100% God, he's 100% man, he's fully human, he's fully God. He had these two perfect and complete natures, and yet he was one person. You're like, that's hard to understand. You're right. It is. It's a mystery. But we have to say that, and we have to believe that, because Christ had to be both God and man to be the Savior of the world. He had to be fully God in order for his sacrifice to have the infinite worth necessary to atone for the sins of all those who would repent and believe. At the same time, he had to be fully man in order to die in the place of man. Somebody put it this way. Quote, he had to be God to have the power of Savior, and he had to be man to have the position of substitute." And so we see back here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul was highlighting the deity and the humanity of Christ. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, but then notice he says, born under the law. In condescending grace, God willingly put himself in the form of his son under the very law that he had instituted. Why? Why? that he might perfectly fulfill it and ultimately bear its curse, which was death. And so Jesus had to grow up within the system of law-keeping in order to be the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins, to live the life that we all fail to live and then to die the death that we all deserve to die. And that's why he was born under the law. And so, of course, all of this is very profound. It's, it's really a, more than our human minds can fathom. But let's look at something else that's more fathomable for us, more understandable for us, maybe a little simpler to understand, and that's the provision of Christ's birth, the provision of Christ's birth. Christ came for the right reason. He came at the right time. He came in the right way, but he came for the right reason. And there's two reasons that Paul gives in verse 5 why Christ came. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we have two things. We have redemption and we have adoption. Let's look first of all at redemption. He says, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That word redeem is the word that was used to describe buying somebody out of the marketplace or setting someone free from slavery by paying a price. And so in those days, slaves were purchased by a gracious master and, and, and they were set free. And so the point Paul's making here is that price, the price that Christ paid to free us from the law was death. That was the price that the law demanded from those who failed to keep it, and so Christ paid that price with his own life on our behalf so that we would no longer have to live in bondage to the law, trying to, again, live with that mean husband that we learned about in Romans chapter 7, who demanded that we keep a bunch of rules and regulations in an attempt to make ourselves right with God. We've been freed from that. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And then verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so we see there... This idea of redemption, paying a price, and the tree that Christ hung on, of course, was the cross. By the way, I was thinking about saying this tomorrow night in the hearing of our unbelieving guests, because it's easy to focus on the manger, um, as kind of what Christmas is all about, you know, the straw and and the the little manger bed. Well, Christmas is not about the straw and the manger. It's about nails and a cross. That's ultimately where Christmas goes, right? In fact, one thing we've done over the last several years, and this was my wife's idea, was to kind of make a statement when it comes to decorating our house, at least outside for Christmas, and of course, in most neighborhoods, you know, they go all out, right? Lights and stuff. And we were driving around uh, Friday night looking at all the Christmas lights down in the woodlands. And it was fun just to drive through the neighborhoods and, and look. And you can tell which cul-de-sacs had more Christians than others, right? Depending on who had the, the, the manger scene out there and, and, and a cross out there. And, and uh, one of the things we do in the front of our house is we purposely don't put any lights on the front of our house. We just have a, a manger little manger and a cross, a wooden wooden manger and a wooden cross with a light shining on it. And just the simplicity of not just the manger, but you have to have them both, right? It's the manger and the cross. One leads to the other. And so um, hopefully that's a good witness uh, for people as they drive through our neighborhood and see something totally different. Like, man, they didn't really, those people are kind of mailing it in, man. There's not even like any lights on their house, but oh, there's that one very stark Statement being made. So, redemption, that was the first reason that Christ came, but that was not an end in itself, but rather a means to a greater end. The ultimate purpose of a redemption is adoption. Notice what he says here. So that we may, he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And that word adoption there was a a very important word in Paul's day because it was a Roman custom that wealthy men would adopt young slaves and make them their sons. They would become legal heirs and they would enjoy all the rights and privileges of of sonship and that's what Paul is referring to. And in a similar way, God redeemed us From bondage to the law, he delivered us from slavery to the law so we could be his sons, so we could be co-heirs with Christ. Notice what he goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I love the, the combination here, or the I guess the, the combination of the Trinity at work. The Father sent the Son to make us His children, and the Son sent the Spirit to assure us that we really are His children. All the members of the Trinity working together here. And this is not the only place where Paul referenced this dynamic of the Spirit coming to live within us, to dwell within us, granting us assurance that we are truly saved. Notice back in Romans, just turn back to Romans, and we're going to get here shortly, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. By the way, two times we've seen now this expression, Abba, Father. Abba, Father which back in those days was the term that a child would refer to his father. It's the term for daddy. That's the kind of relationship that Christ secured for us through his life and his death, that we could have an intimate, personal relationship with God the Father where we could have the confidence to come into his presence and call him, address him as daddy. Daddy. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Paul, again, references this whole idea of sonship, adoption. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, or in Christ, And then look at verse 13 there, Ephesians 1.13. In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And so again, God sends, the Father sends the Son to make us his children and then the, the Son sends the Spirit to confirm, to assure us, to seal the deal. And so Holy Spirit is kind of like our down payment of the inheritance that we have to look forward to in the future. Someone has said it's like the engagement ring, right? That a, that a guy puts on the finger of his fiancé. It's the down payment that I'm going to marry you and a month from now or six months from now or six years from now, however long it might take, right? But it's a down payment. It's a commitment. It's a pledge. And the Holy Spirit serves that role in our lives. Back in Galatians chapter four, what we see here is that the Son of God became the son of man so that the sons of man could become sons of God. That's pretty cool. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of man, that's us, could be the sons of God. He became like us, a man, so that we could become like him. Again, we're going to see this in Romans chapter 8, that God predestined us, chose us before the foundation of the earth to save us, ultimately to conform us to the image of his son, to make a bunch of little Jesuses, if you will, a bunch of people running around looking like Jesus, talking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, and someday to be just like Jesus, perfectly like Jesus when we see him. Will become like him. That's what Christmas is all about. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, he left the glories of heaven, all the riches that he had in heaven, and became poor. Became a man. Lived on this earth so that through his poverty we might become rich. We might be able to enjoy the riches of heaven. Beloved, this is all grace. This is getting what we don't deserve. And God's grace was personified in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. His birth was providential. His birth was profound and it was to provide us salvation from our sin. Remember what the angel told Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus for it is he who will what? Save his people from their sins. When Jesus grew up and began his public ministry, one of the first things he said was this, come unto me all nations you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. That's Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30. Jesus said that, To a generation of people who were striving to earn their salvation by being a good person and by doing good things. The religious leaders of the day had placed this heavy yoke of the law on the people and forced them to carry it around, trying to maintain this system of rules and regulations in order to obtain a right standing before God. And so Christ was inviting them to come to him. And be freed from this burdensome yoke of trying to gain salvation by their own human efforts. And he's calling out still today to people maybe like you. You're here this morning and and, and you're thinking that your salvation is up to you. You're always striving but never feeling like you match up to God's standards. And yet you're still hoping that he's going to consider you good enough sometime to let you into heaven and you're just kind of got your fingers crossed. Well, he's calling out to you. He's inviting you to be freed from that bondage of of rules and rituals and He wants you to, he wants to transform your life is what he wants. And this Christmas, you can experience the gift of God's grace that he offers to all of us through faith alone in what he did for us in his life and his death. You say, well, how do I get that? Well, the Bible says. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do you receive a gift on Christmas or at Christmas? What do you do? You see it's got your name on it? You unwrap it? You open it up? You receive it and you say thank you. And so coming to Christ is the same way. You just come to him in humble repentance. You acknowledge that that you are nothing but a hell-deserving sinner who no matter how hard you try, you will never match up to his holy standards. And you simply receive the free gift of salvation that God has provided you by sending his son to live the life that you have not lived and you could not live and to die the death that you deserve to die. And when you receive that gift, you'll be able to say with John Wesley, I trust in Christ alone for salvation. Not in my good works, not in being a good person. And in fact, not only can you say that, but you can also say, I have an assurance that he has taken away my sins and saved me from the law of sin and death. In other words, you don't have to wonder or, well, I hope, I've done enough, I've been good enough. And live your whole life wondering what's gonna happen when you die. But you can have assurance. Let me say something to those of us who, by God's grace, have become believers. We, we know what Christmas is all about. This is a good reminder for us this morning. Something just to hopefully to fuel our gratitude, our worship, our praise. But I came across another quote from John Wesley. I thought it was very interesting. He said this as he looked back on everything he had done for God before he was saved. This is what he wrote. He said, quote, I had even then the faith of a servant though not that of a son. In other words, I had the, the mindset of a, of a servant or a slave, but not that of a son. And a while back, I came across something in one of Chuck Swindoll's study guides, which I purchased years ago um, when I was still in seminary, and they've proven to be an invaluable resource in, in helping me understand and apply and And teach God's word, but Chuck Swindoll quoted a man named David Siemens who was born in India to Methodist missionary parents and who himself also served with his wife for years um, there in India as a missionary and uh, before his death in 2006, so he's already gone home to be with the Lord. He was an author, he was a a scholar, a leader in the evangelical uh, renewal movements within the the Methodist Church, and in one of his books, he, he shared the following words from a letter that he received from a fellow missionary, and, and, and Siemens suggested that this could be our words when we feel like we've blown it in our efforts to live for Christ. Anybody ever feel like they've blown it in their efforts to live for Christ? Yeah, like every day, like every week, right? But this is what this fellow missionary wrote. He said, Quote, I know all the answers, all the scriptures, and can quote the exact chapter and verse, but it's all in my head. The God I serve is never pleased with me and is certainly nothing like the gracious, loving God I say I believe in and tell others about. Why can't I practice what I preach? I feel like a fake. You ever feel like that? You ever think those thoughts? Siemens went on to contend that these feelings of inadequacy and frustration are the result partly from viewing our relationship with God more like a servant to a master than a child to a father. And he elaborated on how these two different mindsets or perspectives can affect our feelings towards God and and our feelings towards our life. Listen to what he said, quote, he said, the servant is accepted and appreciated on the basis of what he does, the child on the basis of who he is. The servant starts the day anxious and worried, wondering if his work will really please his master. The child rests in the secure love of his family. The servant is accepted because of his workmanship, the son or daughter because of a relationship. The servant is accepted because of his productivity and performance. The child belongs because of his position as a person. At the end of the day, the servant has peace of mind only if he is sure he has proven his worth by his work. The next morning, his anxiety begins again. The child, on the other hand, can be secure all day and know that tomorrow won't change his status. When a servant fails, his whole position is at stake. He might lose his job. When a child fails, he will be grieved because he has hurt his parents, and he will be corrected and disciplined, but he is not afraid of being thrown out of the family. His basic confidence is in belonging and being loved, and his performance does not change the stability of his position. The first time I read that, I said to myself, Ouch. (laughs) Now this is where Bible study or those of us who do Bible study I should say need to remember the principle of the analogy of Scripture or cross-referencing. And uh, there are some um, who asked me on a regular basis, hey, you you were preaching this passage and, and and you didn't say anything about this. And yet, I know that the Bible says this over here. And I'm like, well, that's true. I agree with that. I believe that. And if I was preaching that passage, I would have said that, but I wasn't preaching that passage. I was preaching this passage. And this is what this passage teaches. And that's why it's so important that we we, we study all of Scripture, that we look at the whole counsel of God, so that we have a balanced perspective on what the Bible says and what God wants us to know. And we've been learning from the book of Romans that we are to liken ourselves as God's what? Slaves. Romans chapter 6. And the analogy of a a slave and master is used many times throughout Scripture to depict our relationship with God. Paul frequently referred to himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And we made a big deal about it when we were in Romans chapter 6, that we should view ourselves as slaves of Christ. That's what Paul said, that we went from being slaves to sin, now we're slaves to Christ. And that's an important emphasis to make whenever you get to a passage that talks about slavery to Christ, because many Christians, probably too many Christians, fail to live with this this master-slave mindset, but by the grace of God, I'm not one of them. (laughs) But I am a Christian who often fails to live with a son-father mindset. And so being reminded this morning of what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, particularly verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I need to be reminded of that. How about you? When you think about how you relate to God, Do you typically relate to God as a a slave to a master or as a son or a daughter to a father? Again, it's not an either-or. It's a both and. And somehow we gotta work these things out. To be faithful to Scripture, the Scripture says both. We need to view ourselves as both. And somewhere there's a sweet spot, right, between viewing yourself as a slave to a master and a son to a father. That's what sanctification is all about, finding that sweet spot. But I would just say this morning, in light of the text we're looking at today, that I think having a more balanced perspective could could relieve a lot of our fears and frustrations and restore our joy and our confidence and help us to live and serve simply because we're captivated and we're motivated by how great the Father's love is for us. And again, we're going to get there in Romans chapter 8, and we can't, you can't help but flip back and forth between Romans and Galatians. If you're studying Galatians, you've got to go to Romans, and if you're studying Romans, you've got to go to Galatians. And so I want to just end by going back to Romans chapter 8 and reminding you of what Paul says here in Romans chapter 8 verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against? God's elect. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who has was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And here it is, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we were being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's because of that passage and countless other passages throughout God's Word that we sing with joy at Christmas time about the Wonders of his love. Joy to the world. The wonders of his love. The love of a father for his children. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning as we consider the wonders that are beyond our comprehension. The wonders of your love. How you could love sinful wretches like us to the point where you would send your own son to take the punishment for our sin on the cross, to kill your son in our place so that we could be your son, so that you could adopt us and that you could give us your inheritance along with Christ. Father, this is beyond our ability to to understand and comprehend. And Lord, it should just leave us in awe and wonder, and just in a place of worship. Father, I pray if there's folks who have come today who have been living under the burden of their sin and trying to make themselves right with you by offsetting their sins by doing good things and hoping that someday their good works are going to outweigh their bad works and the good things they've done would, you'd remember more of those than the bad things they've done. Or may you open their eyes to see they don't have to live that way. But they would just humbly admit they're, they're bad people and they're going to go to hell. They deserve hell. But that's why Jesus came for bad people like us to deliver us from death and hell and our sin. And may you draw them to yourself this morning. May you grant them genuine repentance, genuine faith. And Lord, for those of us that know and love Christ, I pray that we would more and more be motivated every day when we wake up, the thought, The first thought in our minds would not be the work that we need to do to to earn our keep as a Christian, but your great love for us as your child. Lord, would you accomplish these things in our hearts, in our lives, for your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.